When you travel to Mozambique to document the rebirth of a national park, you never thought you would end up documenting humanitarian relief efforts in the aftermath of a deadly cyclone. Along the way, you discovered not only the resilience of an ecosystem, but the resilience of an entire country. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. Life in a national park is a completely surreal experience. And it's easy to forget how weird things are. I'll frequently wake up in the morning and have a baboon staring in my window just watching me sleep. This week, near misses with elephants, releasing the zebras and the power of a single image to change policy. Join us on a journey from Princeton University to Gorongosa National Park. It's 22.33. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And that's what we call cultural exchange. My name is Jen Guyton, and I am a Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellow. I am from California. During my Fulbright Fellowship, I went to Mozambique. been a photographer since I was about 12 years old, and I've always dreamed of working with National Geographic. The Fulbright National Geographic Fellowship gave me this opportunity to follow up on my PhD work and actually tell all of those stories that I had been seeing and observing as an ecologist. I work in a place called Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique, and it's an incredibly interesting national park because it has such a unique history. Mozambique went through a really terrible civil war after it gained independence from Portugal in 1975. That civil war lasted about 15 years. And during that time, most of the wildlife in Gorongosa was wiped out. About 90% of the large mammals were killed for their meat or their ivory. Over the past 15 years, an American entrepreneur has been working to restore that national park in conjunction with the Mozambican government, with a lot of support actually from the American government through USAID especially. That restoration effort has brought back most of the wildlife that was in the park before the war. It's a really interesting place for ecologists because we don't really understand very well how ecosystems assemble themselves. Ecosystems have a lot of moving parts. They're very complicated. And scientists actually just don't understand everything about how they work. 
And so a system like this is a really great place for scientists to start to understand how ecosystems come together. Because after a major disturbance like this, certain plants will come back first, certain animals will come back first, the interactions between the species will change over time. And ecologists can observe the way that this ecosystem sort of heals itself and it becomes almost a natural experiment. I got to watch the park management release zebras back into the park. There's been sort of the odd zebra seen here or there in the far reaches of the park since the war, but there really hasn't been a zebra population that has come back since the war. There used to be about 3,500. Now they're just a handful. And so just being there and watching these zebras just like tear out of the enclosure as soon as the doors were open and then become just part of the savanna landscape was a really beautiful thing. And it was, it felt like sort of witnessing the rebirth of an ecosystem. Probably the most common scary encounter I have is with elephants. Tend to be really aggressive to cars because they remember the war and uh, they really don't like people. So it's gotten better over the past few years, even since I started there six years ago. The elephants have gotten way more calm around cars and now safari vehicles can actually stop and watch them, which is really nice. I think they're kind of starting to trust us again. Before that, sort of several years ago, I had a number of scary encounters with elephants on a pretty regular basis. You would turn a corner in your car and you would suddenly find yourself in the middle of a herd of elephants because they are really good at kind of just obscuring themselves on the landscape. They might be, you know, in some bushes or whatever. They're very quiet, like shockingly quiet. Their footsteps are almost completely silent. It's an amazing thing. The only thing really that indicates to you that there are elephants on the landscape is if you hear trees cracking as they're pulling down entire tree trunks. Or you can sometimes, if you listen really closely, you can hear their really low-pitched rumbling sounds that they use to communicate with one another. But otherwise, it's easy to miss them on the landscape. So you'll be driving and you'll turn a corner and you'll suddenly realize that you're in the middle of a herd of elephants. And maybe one steps out on the road in front of you and then maybe one steps out on the road behind you and you're like, oh shoot, I don't know where to go. I had one instance where the matriarch of the herd didn't like having me there. I, I turned a corner in the road and just as I did that, she just immediately charged me. Like full on angry charge. And I threw the car into reverse and I just reversed for about a kilometer at full speed. I was terrified. I was like, I'm going to either die from an elephant or from running into a tree. She was just cutting all the corners. I had to follow the curves of the road, right? But she was just cutting all the corners and she was getting closer and closer and closer. And I was like... Oh no, this is definitely the end. But then after I got a suitable distance away, she was just like, okay, 
We're safe now. The threat is gone, and she just went back to her herd. I think the thing that makes me laugh the most where I live in Mozambique is watching the monkeys. They're so much like us. It's almost scary. You can watch them interact with each other and you can almost come up with this sort of soap opera dialogue of what's happening in their little society and like who's mad at who and who's in love with who and whose baby is that. I remember one day sitting outside and a young baboon had jumped up onto my neighbor's deck and stolen her sports bra, which was out to dry on her chair. I have no idea what was going through his head, but he put it over his head and put his arms through the bra and was just like struggling with it. And it was the weirdest thing. One of the other baboons came over and started to chase him. And then like the other one kind of grabbed it off him and they were playing tug of war for a minute. And then I was like, oh, maybe I should intervene and save my friend's sports bra. (laughs) I was in country when Cyclone Idai hit central Mozambique. And the cyclone made landfall pretty much right on top of Beira City. It's just 100 miles southeast of Gorongosa on the coast. And it's the fourth largest city in Mozambique with about half a million people. Cyclone Idai came in, made landfall on March 15th of this year, 2019. And it ended up being the most intense cyclone that had ever struck in this part of the world. It ended up killing 1,200 people in and around Beira. The biggest problem was the flooding. There was just this huge inland lake that formed. It was about 900 square miles, the size of New York and Los Angeles combined. And that was all just water where it used to be people's houses and farms. We knew about nine days ahead of time that a cyclone was coming, but none of us had any concept of how bad it would be. We all just thought like, okay, it's going to be, you know, some wind and some rain, you know. So a lot of us didn't, chose not to evacuate. And then about six or eight hours before the cyclone was due to make landfall, the park management came around and they were like, everyone has to evacuate right now. We had 30 minutes to pack our bags and they sent us to a city further inland. We suddenly had completely lost contact with Beira. There were absolutely, there was no communication in or out of Beira. All the cell towers were dead. All the radio was dead. The roads had been flooded or broken. And so there was no traffic in, in or out of the city. It was just like complete silence from Beira. And we were absolutely terrified. We had colleagues there. Um, we had friends there. We had family of friends there. And so we kind of sat around really anxious for a couple of days. I was obsessively checking Twitter just for any little dribble of news coming out of Beira. And there were like bits and pieces and the occasional photo that made it out. 
but we really didn't know what was going on. Over those couple of days, I started feeling this urgent need to help. And then after a few days, once we started to understand exactly what the situation was, I realized that we weren't getting very many images out to the world. There were people I was talking to in the U.S. and Europe who had no idea the cyclone had even happened. They hadn't even heard of it. It wasn't on the news. It wasn't on social media. It wasn't anywhere. And um, so people just had no idea what was going on. And I realized that something that I could do is take photos and get them out there. I started working with Gorongosa's relief team. They put together sort of a grassroots effort to get food out to the communities in the park's buffer zone. So I was able to go with them and take photos of both the relief effort, which was just this inspiring thing. A lot of the park rangers dropped everything they were doing and they do important work, you know, protecting endangered species and keeping the park safe. And they dropped everything they were doing to instead get out into the communities and hand out food. I passed those images onto the park and the park was able to use them on their platforms to raise money for the relief effort and also to get them into to various international media outlets. I was happy to be able to contribute in some way in the wake of that disaster because I felt that as a Fulbrighter, I was a guest in that country and it was important for me to try to give back to the community. I was one of the fortunate ones that wasn't affected heavily by the cyclone and there were so many people around me who were suffering and so many people who had welcomed me as a guest into their country with open arms. So I felt like I had to give back. My photos have been ambassadors for certain little-known species, like pangolins, which are my favorite animals. That's pangolins, not penguins. And pangolins are these really funny sort of anteaters that are covered in scales, but they're actually mammals. So their scales are made of hair, just like ours. So they're these really weird, like almost reptile-looking mammals that are actually really beautiful and really unique. There is nothing that is closely related to them in the world. And they're highly endangered because people in Asia use them for their meat and their scales. And a lot of people just don't know about them. And so I've been really lucky in Gorongosa to see a number of pangolins because they get rescued from poachers fairly often there. So I've been able to photograph pangolins and I love 
just, you know, when I take photos of them, I love just littering social media with these photos because inevitably I get messages from people that are like, wow, that is such a cool animal. I have never heard of it before. I am so glad I saw your photo because they're really just magical. And it's actually thought that pangolins were probably the origin of the dragon myth. They just look like these little dragons. They're really a magical creature, and I'm glad that my photos can be ambassadors for them and sort of educate people about their coolness. As a conservation photographer, I have two main goals. The most important one is to make people fall in love with nature. I want them, you know, to see my photos and think, wow, this is an amazing place or an amazing animal, and it's worth having on this planet. I think that unless people love nature and love the wilderness, we're not going to have it around much longer. I hope that by inspiring a love for nature in people, I can also inspire them to um, take action in their own life to protect nature, whether that's voting to protect nature or whether that's spending their money in a certain way, whether that's biking to work instead of driving to work or supporting conservation organizations, I hope that my images in some way inspire people to take action to protect nature. One of the stories I love is that Yellowstone National Park was actually created because of images, because of paintings and photos that Congress saw of Yellowstone. Most of them, had, you know, back then in the mid-1800s, people didn't go from D.C. to Montana on a regular basis. And so Congress people hadn't seen Yellowstone. They didn't know it was there. They didn't know what a rich treasure they had. And through imagery people were actually able to lobby them to protect Yellowstone as the first national park. I think images still have that power today. I think they have the power to affect policy and they have the power to make sure that people know what's out there and what is worth saving. One thing that makes me really optimistic is seeing this national park come back from the brink. There's no, it's impossible to be in Gorongosa and not feel hopeful. 
because you're looking at this place that was almost empty of large wildlife just 15, 20 years ago. Gorongosa is proof that ecosystems can be resilient and that we can restore our wildernesses if we intervene early enough and with enough hope and with enough dedication. Twenty-two thirty-three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name is Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. Twenty-two thirty-three is named for Title Twenty-two, Chapter Thirty-three of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Jen Guyton discussed her time in Mozambique as part of the Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellowship. For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do so wherever you find your podcasts, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Now you can check us out on Instagram at 2233stories. Huge special thanks to Jen Guyton for her stories. Her images can be seen at jenguyton.com. Ana Maria Sinertine did the interview and edited this segment. Featured music was Kaleidoscope by Poddington Bear and three songs by Blue Dot Sessions, Hidden Tiles, Enamorate, and An Introduction to Beatles. Music at the top of this episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time. <laughs>